Now, we're in a, a series on 1 Timothy, and this is Paul's letter to Timothy on how to regulate the life of the church in Ephesus. And this is very important for us because we're coming to a point where we've grown, but now I believe we need to come to a point where we need to be established. And 1 Timothy is going to show us what it means to work towards being an established church. It's one thing to be planted. It's another thing to be brought to a firm and stable basis. And that's what we're aiming at through the First Timothy series. So last week, we saw that God saves sinners. Let the church be grounded and founded on that one truth. We know that we do not approach God by morally outperforming our neighbors. We approach God with the empty hands of faith that receives forgiveness. The gospel is the good news of grace and mercy. Grace is being given what we don't deserve, and mercy is being spared of what we do deserve. And both of that, those have been given through Jesus Christ, who died for your sins. He took the penalty for your sins upon himself through his death who rose again, and his life is your salvation. In that, through faith, you're united to his life. And you are raised up with him, spiritually made alive, and then you are transferred into heavenly places. So there is a spiritual reality that happens with your salvation. It's not just divine life insurance. You are united to the life of Jesus Christ who now indwells you through the Holy Spirit. Now we turn our attention to that next text, starting in verse 18, where Paul, after talking about the gospel of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, the fact that he saves sinners... He goes on to give Timothy, this young man who he has put in charge of the church in Ephesus, a charge and an exhortation to fight the good fight of ministry. So read with me 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In this passage, Paul is exhorting Timothy not just to, to preach the truth, but to actually battle against false teaching at Ephesus. He says, wage the good warfare. In verse 3, we saw a few weeks ago, he says, charge certain persons not to teach any different, different doctrine. Command them not to teach any different doctrine. Wage the good warfare. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. And then we even see in verse 20 at the end 
that Paul himself used church discipline to oppose false teaching. So thinking about this passage this week, I, I came to the realization, not the realization, the re-realization, the confirmation that to be in Christian ministry and indeed to be a Christian means that you're brought into a place of conflict. You're brought into conflict and struggle and opposition as a Christian. Now, you're brought into other things as well. But we really need to appreciate this angle because what is promised in heaven and in glory and in the new creation is not the thing that's promised in the Christian life. In the world, we're going to have tribulation. But in glory, in the new creation, every tear will be wiped away. So we're placed in a conflict with what is not true in, because we're people of truth. We believe we're Christians because we believe it's true. And we should only be Christians if, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. So what we are preaching, what I'm preaching, and what we hold to is reality. As I've said many times, it's not just a spiritual ideology that's sort of one step removed from reality. No. We believe that Jesus actually, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who actually died by Roman crucifixion, who actually rose from the dead, and who is actually coming again, coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we actually believe that through faith in him, there is eternal life. But we believe that in a world who doesn't believe that, who opposes the truth, and we fight against spiritual forces in heavenly places, Scripture says. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So I, I want to come at this passage with, with the idea of conflict in mind. Look with me in verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecy, prophecies previously made about you. Now, right from the get-go, Paul is exhorting Timothy to remember his ordination. I believe this is a reference to his ordination. The prophecies previously mentioned about him. If you go to 1 Timothy 4, 14, you see Paul saying something similar to Timothy. He says, Do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given to you, by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So this is Paul's commissioning to Timothy. When elders gathered around him, laid their hands on Timothy, and commissioned him to ministry. I think perhaps in this text, in 1 Timothy, when Paul is referring to the prophecies made about Timothy, it may not be a foretelling kind of prophecy, but a forth-telling prophecy, a charge. Um, in Baptistic circles, when we ordain someone, a charge is preached by another minister who's already been ordained, and he charges that 
young man put into ministry, or whatever age he is, he charges that minister with the gospel, he entrusts them with the gospel, and the new church that he has received. So this is perhaps a reference to um, Timothy's ordination, when the council of elders laid their hands on him, commissioned to him in ministry, and prophesied over him in the sense of commissioned him to the work. So, Timothy is now a gospel minister. What is he to do? What is he to do? Having been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel and ordained as a minister of Jesus Christ, what is he to do? He is to wage the good warfare. Verse 18, second half, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Again, Paul wants Timothy to be here to fight against false teaching and ungodliness in the church. And that's going to require opposition to those things. Not just teaching the truth, but opposing what is false. So to become a Christian, and for Timothy, this meant to be in ministry, means that he needs to be opposed to false teaching. And I think to be in ministry or to be a Christian in general means you're brought into a point of conflict with the world. Because the assumptions of the world and the values of the world are opposed to what you believe and what you value as a Christian. So obviously there's going to be conflict, right? Obviously there's going to be conflict. The world does not believe what you believe. And does not value what you value. So there's going to be conflict. Now I believe very strongly that we need to be a people who are salt and light. Who are models of what a good man or a woman in Christ is like. Who are compelling in their character. However, we don't do that at the expense of pulling punches when we should actually punch. There are times to fight, and there are times to wage good warfare. And teaching that will drag a church down to the pits of hell is a time to wage good warfare. So as if you if you are not a Christian and you're here today, understand this. To become a Christian does not mean that as soon as you accept Jesus into your heart, life is just going to go smooth and easy and you know, and you're just going to feel good all the time. You know, we were we were singing this song and I used to sing this when I was a kid. I'm in right upright outright downright happy all the time. I'm in right, upright, happy all the time since Jesus Christ came in and washed away my sin. I'm in right, upright, outright, downright, happy all the time. And we'd sing that in Sunday school. Um, and that's, that's nice for kids to sing, but please do not use that as your evangelism tactic. Say, you're going to be happy all the time when you become a Christian. That's not the message. The message is, Hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Hope, as I've said before, um, and I forget the theologian that coined this phrase, but anxiety 
is the anticipation of dread. Hope is the anticipation of joy. In Jesus Christ, we have hope, a sure and steady hope, in anticipation of joy. So, brothers and sisters, please understand, and if you're not a Christian, please understand that becoming a Christian is not like casting a vote for a political candidate. And if that political candidate isn't um, doing the things you want to see done, then you vote for someone else afterwards. Because the Christian life, when you enter the Christian life, expect conflict. Expect struggle. There's the world who opposes your message. There's your flesh, your desires, your impulses that you need to be opposed to. And there's Satan himself. And we do believe in a being who prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Anyone, I'm sure many of you heard the the, uh, book called Pilgrim's Progress. That's a great analogy for what the Christian life is like. It's a, it's a pilgrimage to the heavenly city. And there's going to be doubting castle that you need to be freed from. There's the bog of despond. There's vanity fair. Worldly wise man. It's a great book. And, and I'm sure there's some movies. The 1978 version of... Um, of Pilgrim's Progress is really a good a good movie, um, but that's a great John, written by John Bunyan, a Puritan, a great analogy for what the Christian life is like. It's it is a navigation to glory and union with Christ. So, I really want to double down on this and tell. Please do not be surprised when life gets hard. When you're a Christian. And because you're a Christian. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So there is certainly joy in the Christian life. The communion of saints. Just look around the room here. And I've been edified and encouraged. And I find great joy in the fellowship of the saints, for example. And there is purpose in life. And there is hope. The anticipation of joy. But ultimately your message, understand, is going to be opposed to the world. Your values are going to be opposed to the world. And even your, um, you're even going to be brought into conflict with your own tendencies, your own heart. So there's a conflict that you're brought into when you become a Christian. But take heart, because Jesus Christ has overcome the world, he said. And you're not just doing this by yourself, but you're doing it with the Holy Spirit residing You're doing it with the life of God within you, enabling you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So two things, which I've already kind of touched on. Number one, by way of application, don't be surprised when you need to struggle as a Christian. 
Just don't be surprised about that as if, well, if God's a good God, why is this happening? All over scripture, you are enjoined to expect struggle because you're a Christian. First Peter tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. When you suffer as a Christian and because you are a Christian, you are actually participating in the sufferings of Christ in a way which I do not yet fully understand. But Paul says something so bold. I forget where he says this. He says, by suffering he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's death for your sins paid. Paid it all. But he also left suffering. There's suffering left over for you and me to participate in. And it is our glory and joy to do so. I, I love the passage when I believe it's Paul and Silas are beaten for the faith. And they're in jail. Oh no, it, maybe it's Peter. I think in Acts 4. But they went home rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. I rejoice. That's why I liked our, our evangelism day out there. It was fun being turned away. People that didn't want to hear the message. Now, I don't revel in, in just being turned away all the time, but it's good to suffer a little as a Christian. It was good to be turned away as a Christian, to be ignored. So, don't be surprised when you need to struggle as a Christian. Personally, or your family, or against the values and beliefs of the world. Number two, <coughs> understand that your struggle is not just a matter of self-preservation. It is a matter of pleasing God and being acknowledged and approved by Him for your warfare. I, I love... I am such a child at heart because I realize I want to be acknowledged by God. A childlike faith... What does a child want from his father? He wants to be acknowledged. What, is a, what does a dog want from its owner? To be acknowledged. What does a horse run, want from his rider? To be acknowledged. It is, it is what the inferior desires from the superior. To be acknowledged. And I realized the past month or so that this is really such a childlike desire that I long for. The Lord has placed into my heart. There's, there's a, I, I watched a video of a, little, a small little kid, maybe six, seven years old, where he was standing outside of um, where, wherever the Nets play. Where did the Nets play? Barclays. Who? What? Barclays Center. Barclays Center. Barclays Center. Standing outside of Barclays Center, and Kevin Durant was coming around the corner. And this kid was getting all excited because he saw him coming around the corner and he held out his hand. 
and Kevin Durant gave him a handshake like that. And the kid was in awe. And he was looking at his hand. He said, I'm never going to wash my hand again. He couldn't believe that Kevin Durant slapped his hand as he walked by like that. Because he was acknowledged by somebody that he respects so much. There was another... Um, there was, I don't know why this scene always struck me. There was a scene in a show that we used to watch, Nydia and I, about um, King Henry VIII. But anyhow, he was, he was on his way to somewhere. He was dry, riding in a field. And farmers looked up. And the farmers saw the King of England riding by with an entourage. And they looked up and they pointed at him and said, That's the King of England! And the king of England waved at them. And they were awestruck because the king of England acknowledged them. Think about, is there somebody in, just in life who you greatly admire, who you would, your heart would almost burst if you were acknowledged by them in a positive manner? I think that is a... I really do think that's a childlike and God-given desire that is ultimately fulfilled by the Father and Jesus Christ himself. C.S. Lewis, in his, um, in his article, his essay called The Weight of Glory, he says, the promise of glory is, is the promise. Almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, find approval, and shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father his son. It seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. One of the most motivating sentences in the whole of Scripture for me is, Well done, good and faithful servant. I... That's what I long for. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So yes, there's struggle. But understand your struggle is not just about preserving yourself, although it is that, but it's also about pleasing God and striving to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You waged the good warfare. You fought the fight. You finished the race. Now there is a crown laid up for you. Acknowledged by the Father. So, be of good cheer, because the struggle is exceedingly worthy to undertake. So how do we war, then, as Christians? Verse 19, we war... By holding faith and a good conscience. How do we hold the faith? We maintain our trust, a personal trust in Jesus Christ. And we maintain our belief in the foundations of the faith. 
We were just talking about the Apostles' Creed earlier. But that is, if you know it, is the foundations of the faith. Let me actually tell you what that says. Here's what you hold to. Here's what your faith... So faith is like an arm. And you need to hold on to something. Faith has an object. You don't just believe in anything. I get a kick when people say, oh yeah, I'm a person of faith. Well, what is it that you are placing faith in? Right? You, you don't just, right? You don't just have faith. That's like Gary and I were talking earlier. That's just like saying, yes, I believe in God. Yes, the higher power. But has he revealed himself? How do you know who God is? How, how can you be rightly in relationship with God? Right? So we're not about spiritual platitudes as Christians or generalities. So, what is our faith? We have faith in what? The Apostles' Creed is a great, succinct explanation to what we believe. And it goes like this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Questions about that? We can answer that. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended. Um, Third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That is such... I almost want to tear up when I, when I quote that because my heart says yes to that. That's what I believe. I believe that. I confess that. So that's what your faith holds on to. In spite of what you may doubt or have questions about. How do you hold on to a good conscience then? The conscience is your internal witness to your own behavior. Your conscience is your internal witness to your own behavior. Now, a conscience, if it is rightly ordered by God, is made alive by the Holy Spirit, is informed by Scripture, but it is given to you, at the risk of sounding like Jiminy Cricket, as a guide so that you can honor God the way that he is impressed upon your own spirit, if it is spirit-informed and Scripture-informed. Paul says in Acts 24, 16, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. I feel like we don't talk enough about this. The conscience, because it's all over the New Testament. Do you take pains to live with a clear conscience before God and men? Take, I would encourage you to take great care 
not to wound your conscience. Even in gray areas, and that's where, that's where the conscience really comes in the most because it, it guides you through the gray areas. Whereas something may not be a sin proper, it could wound your conscience. And if you wound your conscience enough, that is, if you grind your conscience enough, Paul talks about the phenomenon of searing your conscience. People who have a seared conscience. So I have, I, I have a fishing knife that was dull. I was trying to cut this fish, and it, it was like, what is this fish made out of metal? It wasn't cutting, and so I had to. I bought a a fishing knife um, sharpener. So I sharpened that baby up, and now it is the sharpest knife knife in our house. And that that will cut beautifully. I cut right through a fish the other day with that. Um, why did I tell you that? Oh, because. If I ground that that knife against a rock, it's going to become dull, unsharp, and it's not going to do what it was meant to do. Every time you wound your conscience, you're grinding your conscience and making it more dull. But don't worry, that can be reversed. If you follow your conscience, that is biblically informed, spirit-driven, it will guide you through those gray areas so that things that may not be wrong for someone, it's wrong for you. Amen. It's wrong for you because it would wound your conscience and it wouldn't wound the other people's conscience. Paul talks specifically about this very thing in eating food sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians. So, the conscience it doesn't make you better if you have a, uh, a more aggressive conscience. It just means that that is the lot that God has given you, and you specifically, to guide you through the life that you have. So, Coram Deo. Who knows what it means? Coram Deo. God, <laughs> close, more to it. Corm Deo is a Latin phrase which means before the face of God. And but after, after um, chapel every morning in my high school, I went to a Christian high school, we would say, I pledge to live my life in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory, Corm Deo. That in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory is a succinct explanation of what Coram Deo means, before the face of God. So, your conscience helps you live before the faith of God, uh, the, the face of God. And so, the way you wage war is to hold on to faith, you fight for faith, and a good conscience. Take pains to not wound your conscience. And, Sharpen your inner witness to your own behavior by following your God-given, spirit-enlivened, scripture-informed conscience. 
That is what it means to be an authentic Christian. And that's very interesting because today the world authenticity means living in conformity with your desires. And that's where we get magnificent songs like Let It Go. But that's not what a Christian conscience is. A Christian conscience is not living in conformity to your desires. It's living in conformity with your beliefs. I love this paragraph by one author, Eric Thones, in an article. I forget the title. I can give it to you if you're interested. He says, there's the idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of, of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity with what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of how I feel isn't hypocrisy. It's integrity. Amen. Right? So to live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy. It's integrity. We've lost, we've become a uh, authentic, authenticity culture instead of a, an integrity culture. Be an integrity person. So we hold the faith in a good conscience. And again, that means, because your conscience could be way off if you're not a Christian. It could just be wrong. So it needs to be spirit-led biblically informed and God-centered witness to your thoughts. Now, it is the shame that in this passage Paul says by rejecting this, by rejecting the faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck their faith. And he mentions two names, Hymenaeus and Alexander. If you have your Bibles, I want you to do this with me. Hymenaeus and Alexander... Um, now I think I think this ha does have it if you look at the little letters on your verses you'll see like a V A B so when he mentions Hymenaeus verse 20 there's a little R right below Hymenaeus now if you have a reference Bible you can do this the R, if you look down to your references, which are either in the middle of the page or below the page, go to verse 20 and look up what I say is R. It'll take you to 2, or 2 Timothy 2, verse 17, where Paul actually mentions what the sin of Hymenaeus is. In 2, verse 17... Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 17. See, but, but avoid, back in verse 16, Paul says, avoid, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread, spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. Alexander is also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 16. Alexander, it is said of him that he opposed the message of the gospel. 
Now, we don't have all the details with these two men, but we know that Hymenaeus was teaching some kind of heresy about the resurrection, and Alexander was directly opposing the message of the gospel. What we do know, although we don't know exactly what they were teaching, we do know that they made shipwreck their faith, and they failed to keep in step with Christ, their faith in Christ. Some have made shipwreck their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. You could say that they wrecked their faith on the rocks of heresy and ungodliness. This is like the people in Luke 8, verse 13, where Jesus says that the ones sown on the rock are the ones who hear the word and receive it with joy. But these do not have root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. So it is by rejecting faith in a good conscience that one makes shipwreck their faith. So you fight. You fight for faith in the midst of doubt. And you fight for a good conscience between God and man. And you get answers to your questions. And you get help for other people. But you wage war against false teaching, false thinking, and false acting. Now, how did Paul handle this? How did Paul handle this and say, he says, well, they're upsetting the faith of some. Isn't that a pity? You know, these two, don't listen to them. No, the Apostle Paul aggressively opposed them. And he said, I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That is a strong sentence. I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Handing over to Satan is a reference to what's often called excommunication. It means that Paul formally removed them from the colony of heaven on earth, the church, and placed them back into the world, which is the realm of Satan. Removed from the colony of heaven and placed back in to the lost and dying world. In our church, we call this church discipline. Uh, and church discipline is when someone is guilty of significant, open, and unrepentant sin. Those three are all important. Significant, open, and unrepentant sin. And he, he or she does not repent of what they are doing. They are open about it. And it is significant in their life. It's not just they have a habit of being selfish time and now again. Or they, they swore under their breath a little too much. It means that there is some kind of significant act that they are doing and keep doing. Or something they're following through with, which tells the church that there is something massively wrong with their relationship with Christ. 
Church discipline, then, just to give you a definition, is an act of the congregation where that person is formally removed from membership so as to say there is something wrong with your walk with Christ. And we can no longer lend confidence that you are a Christian. We can't make an authoritative declaration on whether you're a Christian or not. It's just that we cannot lend confidence that you're a Christian because your life is bearing the opposite of what the fruit of righteousness is. I believe church discipline is the tool that God has given the church or is a tool that God has given the church to warn them that they're on the path to destruction. Um, here's what Paul says. Here's just an example of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if someone's life demonstrates that they are spiritually dead, we, not, we must not, by our silence, give them the impression that they are spiritually alive. Right? I would, I would want to double down on that and say that is a cowardly and even hateful thing to do. If somebody shows the mark of being spiritually dead, clear marks of being spiritually dead, it would be a cowardly and hateful thing to do to give them the impression that they are spiritually alive. Now, I want to be, this, this must be carried out in love. Love for the person and the purity of the church in Jesus Christ. And so, I don't have time to explain all the elements of church discipline, but we're not like gung-ho, yeah, remove them from the congregation, send them out to Satan. This is, it's not like we revel in this, you know. It's, it, this, is a, this is a horrible thing if someone makes shipwreck their faith. It wounds us together. And, and we want to call them back. And we want to have conversations with them before this ever gets to this point. And we want to ask them to repent. We want to encourage them. We want to show them that we're here for them. But if, for example, a man leaves his wife and kids for another woman, it would be a horrible, hateful, and despicable thing for God's people to pretend like nothing's wrong. Right? You call that person to repentance, and if they do not, church discipline is in order as a public testimony that there is something wrong with your relationship with Christ. The most loving thing we can do is practice church discipline when it is in order. If someone's, my dad gave me this example one time when I was in my questionable years as a teenager. He said, if somebody is running off a cliff 
and you throw a rock at their head to stop them is because they care for you. You don't say, oh, I don't want to throw the rock in their direction because I don't want to hurt them. But Well, they're running off a cliff. You do anything you can to stop them. Um, that's the logic of church discipline. That's why I have that book up here today because I know perhaps for some of you who are especially non-members and who have not been introduced to this before in a church may say, what is this man talking about? I thought the church was about love and grace. It is about love and grace. And I want to say it is the most loving thing you can do to tell a person that he might be going to hell. And church discipline is a tool that God has given us to warn that person if they are open and unrepentant. Now, also too, you can't discipline non-members. Uh, um, this applies to members specifically. Now we can talk to you, but this is especially for members of the church. We formally remove them from membership. That's church discipline. Now, if you're not a member, <laughs> you say, "Well, I'm safe then." You know, I'm not a member. Well, we would still we still love you. We still want to call you to repentance and say there's something massively wrong with your relationship with Christ if you're guilty of open and unrepentant sin. But as members, we're accountable to one another. So you, you join a community whom you are accountable to. If you're with that, with that as an advertisement, <laughs> with church discipline as the advertisement, if you're interested in church membership, um, right now it's a matter of just seeing me, reading a little book called Nine, um, What is a Healthy Church? Then meeting with me, we walk through the statement of faith, your personal testimony, and then I take that to the congregation. If I feel like you're prepared and ready and you are a Christian, and the congregation votes on you um, to become a member or not, if they know something about your life, um, that's hidden. And that's the way we build the church, through membership. All right. Let me just give you three things about church discipline, just to clarify. Handing someone over to Satan, number one, and again, I say this is open, significant, and unrepentant sin. If somebody is practicing homosexuality in an homosexual relationship, a member has gone in that direction, we don't pretend that everything's okay in their relationship with Christ. So it's open, significant, and unrepentant sin. Number two, there's due process when it comes to church discipline. Number one, this is according to Matthew 18. You go and tell a brother his fault. Number two, if he won't listen to you, bring two or three others. Number three, if he won't listen to you or them, tell it to the church, congregation together. And the church goes and tries to call that person to repentance. If they won't listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile and tax collector. That's when you remove them formally. So this must be done out of genuine, that's, oh, and the third, number the third point about church discipline, the hope of church discipline is always restoration of the person disciplined. Always restoration. In the most hopeless situation, what, what you're doing is you're removing them from the congregation to say something is massively wrong with your walk. We're telling you this. The hope is that they repent. 
and are restored back into fellowship after they've undone or stopped doing what they are doing. So church discipline ultimately must be a matter of pure and undefiled love for that person in God's church. This is not just an anomaly, handing over to Satan. This is throughout the New Testament. Not just in Matthew 18, which I just quoted, but also in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. You know, he says these same things. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, he says, of this person who is, who is sleeping with his father's mother, he says, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. And the day of our Lord. So the destruction of the flesh there means carnal desires. In this case, these strong and perverse, sec gross sexual sin, so that his spirit may be saved. That's what church discipline aims for, the restoration of the brother or sister. Um, so, that's conflict that we may have to... We've only had one case of church discipline at Church of the Vine so far. Um, we may have others. I'm hoping not, but we may have others. If we're going to be a faithful church, we need to not be afraid of church discipline, and we need to enter that conflict faithfully and lovingly. So, this is the conflict that you are engaged in as a Christian. Don't be surprised when you have to oppose the world and its values. Don't be surprised when you not must oppose sin. Wage the good warfare. Fight the fight. Finish the race. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. And steer your vessel with those things. Avoid the rocks of heresy and ungodliness in your life. Hold fast to faith and hold on to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And understand that you were destined to participate in Christ's sufferings and to wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you are fighting against your own sin, don't be surprised that it's there. We're not glorified yet. We don't have perfect bodies yet. So until that time, there will always be, although it can get easier, there's always going to be a struggle against sin. And you fight. You don't give in. You fight. Therein is godliness. And that's how God will build his church. I trust. Let's close in a word of prayer.